Welcome to the Collective West podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to supporting young people in Melbourne's West. My name is Julia. And I'm Michael. Marisha Naya is 28 years old and was born in Australia and raised in Melbourne's Western suburbs by migrant parents. Her dad is from Malaysia and has an Indian background, and her mum is from India and has a British and Persian background. She grew up in Hoppers Crossing and attended Victoria University, completing a Bachelor of Communications in 2014. Post-graduation, she worked in marketing and advertising for over three years at ad agencies, startups, and ran her own consulting business. In 2016, she began a Master's of Human Rights with a focus on climate migration in an effort to pivot her career to be more purpose-driven. While studying and working, she completed five internships which were based around climate change and migrant refugee rights. Three of these were overseas in Geneva, Switzerland, London, England, and New York City. Upon returning to Melbourne, she worked as a cultural development officer for Wyndham City Council, and in November 2020, she completed her master's. Marisha currently works as the Australian Program Manager for YGAP and as the head of community for Sari Co. In her spare time, she likes to hike, read, curate playlists, and drink lots of coffee. Oh, wow, there you go. Hi. Hello. Hi. This is embarrassing, Marisha. You just walked into me flexing. Um, yeah, I was wondering what you were doing. Um, I was very excited just to see you. That's okay. Yeah. Have you called them again, Michael? So what is it? I don't have trying? names for my biceps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. I do. Yes. I love this. Marisha, this is Julia. Hi, Julia. Julia. It's so nice to Marisha. meet you. It's so lovely to meet you virtually. I've read your bio and I've heard some things from Michael mm. and I'm really excited to chat with you tonight. Right. Oh my gosh. All good. It's th- all good things. All, yeah, all good very, things like nice. all good things, I hope. <laughs> and I'm going to challenge you because this is going to be a bit of a random question to start mm. with. But I've done enough stalking of your LinkedIn. This is so embarrassing. Kind of, to kind of map out a journey of your career. And then we can go back and talk about obviously of what course. you do now. But hopefully, yes. hopefully, this chronology works for you. Yeah. So can you tell us from January 2018? Mm hmm. To November 2018. Yeah. Can you give us an overview of what you were doing? But more importantly, where were you? Okay. <laughs> so January to November 2018, I was doing a few things. So when I was in Melbourne, I was running my own consultancy business in digital marketing which is a field that I had left. So I was doing that. I was working part-time in retail, which is not on my LinkedIn to earn extra money. I was studying my master's in human rights through Curtin University online and part-time. And then I was also doing internships. So I did one internship with a refugee advocacy group for Tamil Sri Lankan refugees. And I did that from kind of January to Uh, I did it for about five months, but the last month of that, I went to Geneva. So I was in Geneva in Switzerland at the United Nations Human Rights Council. So I did that. And then I came back for a very brief period of time. (laughs) And then I was offered a double internship with the UN, which I ended up declining. And we can go into like why I declined. Then I got two other internships. So I went for just over three months and lived in South London in a place called Southwark. And I worked for ATD Fourth World and lived and worked with migrant refugee families, um, running programs and just like supporting them as best as I could. And then I went, flew straight to New York and I lived in Brooklyn in Bed-Stuy, but then I worked in Williamsburg with a climate change nonprofit called Human Impacts Institute. And I was working with the um, Taiwanese embassy and the German embassy on climate change related arts projects. But I was also running programs educating inner city Brooklyn high school age students about climate change and the impacts of climate change. And then I came home. And I did that. And that was all, mind you, unpaid. Um, I saved for three years fully and funded it myself with, um, yeah, doing all of that. So the university didn't provide any type of... No, 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 no. (laughs) And I didn't take a loan. I didn't have a credit card. My parents, you know, couldn't afford to help me out. So I did all of that on my own with my own funding. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. First, yeah. Firstly, I wanted to say (laughs) I both hate you and I'm jealous of you. (laughs) Such a beautiful comment. (laughs) (laughs) To be able to travel that much in 2018 and obviously... Where we are now with the pandemic. Oh, yeah. 
there's an, I'm so there's glad a couple I did of things it. I wanted. Mm. Yeah, there's a couple of things I wanted to touch on. Mm. Uh, one was that we, I want to get to was how did you make that switch? So keep that in mind. Mm. The second thing was those three different internships that you did over the course of 2018. Yeah. What were some of the lessons you learned? Mm. And that could be lessons from, you know, traveling from different parts of Europe. I'm assuming you didn't just go to London and go to Switzerland and also working in New York. I guess mm. you have a really global perspective, like literally mm. global perspective. Mm. And what, mm. did, what sort of lessons did you learn? Yeah. Um, what, what was your first question? Because I don't want to miss out on... The first one, which we'll come back okay, to, yeah. was I wanted to get your, the, like the thinking between the switch from digital marketing oh. into a master's of human rights. Oh, but let's, yeah, we let's, can go into that later. We'll yeah, touch okay. on that later. We'll go into, yeah, what um, did you learn from So learning. Um, so yeah, I did quite a bit of traveling throughout that year as well. So when I was in London, I went and visited friends in Warsaw, in Poland, um, visited some other friends in Valletta, in Malta. And then in the interim between London and New York, I went to Berlin. I've got family there, so I stayed with them. And I also traveled throughout England and also Scotland and Ireland as well and did a little bit, actually, I will say one of the best layovers of my life in Copenhagen, that airport is out of control. It is so good. Um, so <laughs> shout out to Copenhagen. Shout out to Copenhagen Airport. You guys know what you're doing. So I think I really learned, I've always traveled by myself. You know, occasionally I'll travel with friends overseas and with family, but I'm very used to kind of being alone. Um, so just really as, you know, a woman and a woman of color navigating that space at a young age really was very aware of my surroundings and kind of tried to be as street smart as possible. If I was going to a new place, I'd look up in advance, you know, things that I need to know from local people who'd written on forums or, you know, travel guides, really be prepared in every aspect in terms of, you know, flights and accommodation and money and all that sort of stuff. So just, you know, I'm a planner and I'm a forward thinker. So that really did come in handy when I was traveling. In terms of the lessons that I learned, though, during the different internships that I did, so with the one with the UN and going there, I think for me that was a really great experience to really understand that despite being a person, you know, a young woman of colour who has faced adversity in, in her life, I'm also incredibly privileged, like incredibly privileged to be born and raised in Australia, to live in a, you know, middle-class family, to be able to attend university. And those are all things I did know, but just not having to experience things like rape or torture or watch my family get murdered, like that is such a privilege to not have to experience that. Going over there as a speech writer where I was translating documents and speeches from formal English, uh, sorry, uh, broken English into formal English and every single day for six days a week for three weeks just hearing about people who would faced human rights atrocities in a, in a civil war it really put that into perspective and just made me understand I'm using this privilege to further, you know, someone else who needs to be at the forefront of this, this conversation. I do not need to be at the forefront of this conversation. That was a really great lesson I learned in doing that internship. In saying with the other ones as well, the reason I chose places like London and like New York is that I wanted to go to, for lack of a better word, developed countries where I could really understand the types of projects that were happening with local communities who were incredibly disadvantaged in inner city. Because I feel like a lot of the time when people think about, oh, I'm going to intern overseas and I'm going to go into development, they really think about going to, you know, the poorest place possible or whatever might look good on their resume. And that's not to say London and New York doesn't look good on my resume, but it is something where for me, I really wanted to understand the differences and the way we operate in Australia and the systems we use here and how we navigate those systems and the difference between other developed countries such as, you know, England and America. So that was really helpful. And I think the final, like the third lesson I can touch on is just learning to live in discomfort and just knowing that the privilege that we experience on, on having a beautiful space is is temporary. And just ex like, and if you are going to do things that are really challenging, just being prepared to be uncomfortable. Um, when I was in Geneva, I slept on a floor, a hard floor, <laughs> in a sleeping bag with my colleague directly beside me, also in a sleeping bag for three weeks. And we did not, that's where we slept, on the floor of a tiny apartment with a bunch of refugees. When I was in London, I lived and worked in a housing commission with migrant families who were homeless. So with the exception of my bedroom, all my shared spaces were with them. 
And in New York, I was lucky enough to live in a really nice, decent apartment, but our offices were at a public library. So I think that just being okay to be in spaces that aren't, you know, it all sounds really prestigious, but it wasn't, you know, I was sleeping on the floor. I was budgeting every dollar. I was really um, having to be careful with my surroundings. So yeah, I think that just really accepting that that's a reality if you are going to do the work and do it properly. Bloody incredible. Thanks. (laughs) That that would, that would change a person. Yeah. (laughs) Like going through that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. I mean, I definitely feel better for that experience. Um, I'm very, once again, fortunate and super lucky that I was able to experience that. Mm. Yeah. When you were interning, you mentioned it was unpaid. Yeah. Did you have to work other jobs while you were there to to keep going or were you able to just live off savings? Yeah. So I was able to live off savings, which was once again, very lucky. The internships in Geneva and also in London and New York were all, uh, Geneva, sorry, was six days a week when I was there. When I was outside of that back in Melbourne- yeah. When I was in Melbourne doing it, it was only one to two days a week prior in the in the preparation and the lead up to going over there. But in London and New York, I was I was interning four days a week. So that one I had three days off. I fortunately I was able to kind of budget in this a certain way and live off my savings. Yeah. And then come back to Australia with absolutely no money. <laughs> but I mean with a wealth of experience oh, amazing. Yeah. in place of that money. Mm. I mean, most people go their whole lives never mm. having experienced any one of those yeah. things. Either traveling to a country by themselves or actually being so immersed in the communities that they're mm. they're working or serving in those countries mm. is actually incredible. And at the risk of making this podcast into a travel podcast, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to ask, before we switch into the digital marketing yeah. career, do you have any fun facts or traveling tips? Fun facts. Okay. I don't have any art. Oh. I don't have any fun facts. I don't think um, I've got tra- oh, just tra- traveling traveling tips. I have a, a wealth of. Okay, a few things. First of all, <laughs> when you were traveling, and once again, as a young woman, if you were traveling, the best advice I can possibly give you is to act like a local. Act like a local and have a resting bitch face. <laughs> Let us swear on this podcast. <laughs> You've already okay. That. You can edit. Try to edit that out. <laughs> But just have a resting bitch face because nobody is going to mess with you if you look Mm. like you are from there. When I was in London and New York, I used to get approached all the time with people thinking that I lived in the area. Primarily in America, they thought I was Latino. So they just like all the time came up to me and spoke Spanish to me. It really benefited. I was never bothered. I just acted as though I belonged there and I had a right to take up space in that community and no one ever, ever, ever bothered me. I think the other thing is if you are at an airport and you get offered a lift by someone who is not in a registered taxi, do not take it. <laughs> Both in Warsaw and in New York, I've had men who have come and tried to grab my bags and force me into cars with them. It was very terrifying and I adamantly refused to go because at the end of the day, like they are not registered and they are trying to get you so that they can take you to a secondary location. And I don't know what that would end up like, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. I um, had a couple of those experiences that were very real. So when you come out of an airport, I would even suggest if you are landing in an airport you don't know, research beforehand on how on the airport website or just generally how to get out of the airport from and to where you're going safely. Because I feel like when you come out, you can be exhausted, you can be really disorientated and people will take advantage of that and try to get you to go somewhere that you're, you know, if you're unfamiliar mm. with the place. Can I ask? So, yeah, that would be great tips. Mm. And I got to say, your your story already is so impressive because for me, you know, as another <laughs> young woman of colour, I don't think I'm as comfortable mm. being able to go to another country and just do what exactly what you share. That's absolutely amazing. Mm. I feel like January to November 2018, it's a pretty short time space to pack in that much adventure. Like, did you plan to yeah. do that many internships or was it that you, uh, you know, applied and all the opportunity came up and you just didn't want to, you know, say no and you were like, I'm going to do it all in the one go? Was it kind of thought through beforehand? Yes. <laughs> As I said, I'm a planner. So n- n- there is very rarely things I will do that are spontaneous, I'll be honest. I may mean, sound really boring, but um, I love a plan. <laughs> To be perfectly honest with you, and this will kind of relates to, Michael, your initial question, but with what my career pivot that I was doing from one industry to the other, I was in a very fortunate position where I was consulting 
like for my working for myself, essentially, I knew that there was very rarely going to be an opportunity where that may arise again in my future, in my, in my career. I would hope that would, but you know, you never know. And at the same time, I was pivoted to doing my master's in a completely different field, trying to get work in that industry and just having had no on the ground experience, which was fine if I wanted to go into the marketing or comms department of an NGO or nonprofit, but not fine if I wanted to, you know, go into programs, um, which is what I wanted to do. So the reason I did these internships was because I thought I've got the money. I finally got the time where I'm not committed to a full-time role. I might as well take advantage of that and just learn as much as I can on the ground experience so that when I come back, I'm able to really get a job in the industry I'm looking for. So it was very calculated and very planned as to what I was doing. And I even narrowed it down like my master's focuses on climate migration so it's a very, very niche subject, which is now becoming more popular. But at the time, you know, three years ago, the only options I could have was kind of either to go into refugee and migrant kind of work or climate change work. So you'll see that all of, I did five internships before I completed my master's degree. And all of those were based around either one of those two topics. So I was very deliberate on what organizations yeah. I and chose. And was there a point in... Yeah. I guess that 11 months of internship where we obviously have heard your the things that you have learned like was there any point in that journey where you were mm. like this is really hard and I want to quit and what made you I guess <laughs> keep pushing on There was many times many times I had a lot of people who told me I couldn't do it, who told me that to pivot my career um, when I was already successful in one medium was really ridiculous and just silly and not not possible, which I thought was insane because I was so young. I was like 23, 24. Like I'm so young. What do you mean? I can't mm. pivot my career. You know, that's just ridiculous. I think for me, I faced you know, and as I said, it's all in perspective, but I have faced a lot of challenges in my life and a lot of hardships and, and a lot of people telling me I can't do something. And I'm very much a person where if you say I can't do it, I'll just do it. Totally I will wrong. do it. And I've always said it's a matter of not if I do it, but when I do it, because I will always do it. It's just a matter of time. The time is the only thing that's differentiating factor. I think the biggest moment that was really difficult was my final meeting with my boss in my New York internship. So at that point, I had done five internships because before I left to go to Geneva, I'd actually done two prior, one with a climate change organization in Melbourne for six months and then a year at Oxfam. So I'd already done, you know, all, everything I thought I needed to do in order to come back to Australia and get a career. And we're in this cafe in Williamsburg, sitting there with this, my boss, who is an amazing woman, but once like even more privileged than me um, in many ways. And she was saying to me, I don't understand how you're going to get a career when you go or get a job when you go back to Melbourne because you are too all over the place. You don't have a clearer vision. Climate migration is too niche for you to get a job in. And I think you're really lost. And I think that, you know, you've worked with climate change organisations and refugee organisations and you have mm -hmm. to pick one. That was so hard to hear. That was horrendous. I just spent all this time and money and energy and effort trying to learn as much as I could about two really important topics to me. And she was saying to me, that's all grown to waste. You, you need to think of something else because you, or you need to pick something because it's just not working. And she left and I cried for one hour in the bathroom toilets of that cafe a very fancy cafe mind you <laughs> in Williamsburg so I'm there in the bathroom hysterically crying just like my like my last week in New York just fully broke down because I was exhausted and I had no money left and I'd done everything I could and I was told by someone who was incredibly wealthy and powerful that I wasn't going to make it and that was really hard so that was definitely a moment that was yeah, no, not great, but I learned so a lot from it. What happened next? Because I recall I had a very similar moment as well in my career. And it. <laughs> you two are so similar. Oh, um, I love it. It, it feels like I'm talking to the same I, I too, I left and it was the same kind of scenario. Amazing mentor, but like super powerful said that, what are you trying to do? Run a business. And I cried mm. a lot. <laughs> outside the mm. center ringing my mom yeah so I know exactly that feeling but I'm curious <laughs> it's like wh what happened after that like you just what what what, what does happen 
you you yeah. just got to keep going. You just got to keep going. You just have to keep. And I know this sounds insane because obviously, you know, there's so much, you know, so many different factors and so much systemic oppression and issues that combine to really stop you from being able to do things. But I, I, I don't want to sound like an, I'm going to swear again. I don't want to sound like an asshole saying this, but I just see people. I've got a counter. That's okay. Thanks. Thanks. Three. Three squares. <laughs> um, I actually swear a lot, so I'm really monitoring myself. I, I hope you <laughs> understand that. I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> but essentially, I I just have this, another, I've got a few policies, don't I? I have another like policy or saying where it's, I, I see people who are doing incredible things and, you know, within a realistic sense of the word of like, okay, what are my capabilities? What are my skills? What are my resources? I just do what I can with what I have. And I was seeing people who were out there doing things that I wanted to do or in careers that I wanted to be in who just, you know, I, I was hard. I was, you know, smarter than them. I was harder working than them. I was more strategic than them. I was going to give it my everything. And I just think if they can do it, then why can't I? There's no reason as to why I can't do it. And obviously there are reasons, you know, that there are barriers that you're going to face as as a woman and as a woman of colour, but it doesn't mean that you can't at least give it a shot. And I'm always, I'm here for breaking those boundaries um, where possible. So yeah, yeah, I think after that, I just really picked myself up and was like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm I'm going to figure it I love out. That. I love that. There's a serious fierce force in you when you, even when you're describing that situation where you're like, nah, you know, obviously you were really hurt in that moment from this particular mm. boss or this particular person, but you were like, I'm not going to let that stop me from pursuing what I want to do. And so good on you and well, well done for pushing on and proving that the person's wrong. <laughs> Have you had contacts with that person since? Um, it's funny you mentioned that. So I actually did have contact with them. I reached out to them for a reference. They gave me a letter of reference. But the thing is, because it was unpaid, which you're not meant to do in the US, in, in that particular context, she was unable to give me a, a, a proper reference, um, like a, an email, a direct email or phone call as a reference, just because it would reflect badly on the organization that they had let someone intern unpaid. So that was the last contact I'd had with them. But I, I have, you know, I do check in occasionally and see them on LinkedIn. I'm sure that they're thriving and doing great things. That's, that's bloody mm. tough feedback to get. Yeah. <laughs> that, that actually, that sucks. I can imagine how deflated you'd, oh my God, you've got this <laughs> Wait, is yours Frank Green? Mine is Frank Green. Did you buy yours from Yarraville? No. Well, I oh, know exactly okay. the shop you're talking about, though. You, you know I know exactly store what store that, you're right? talking about. I love you know, that store. So I saw this. I'm like, I always wanted a bottle that was stainless steel, but also had a had a straw. <laughs> Can I tell you? Because I, I want I want my hydration to be hands-free. Okay, exactly. I don't right? want to have to, I don't want to have to, like, a lid. Hold it. A lid? I've got to unscrew a lid? Ridiculous. Lid. Lids are for people in the eastern suburbs. Lids are for pe- they're, no, not for, you know, they're not for people in the west. It's funny you say that because I always make fun of my CEO for having a lid and he lives in the eastern <laughs> suburbs. So your theory is correct. I, I like anecdotal evidence when it suits my agenda. <laughs> and I don't like it when it doesn't. <laughs> Moving on to something a bit more serious yeah. with how you manage and also stand up to expectations. So you mentioned that having that boss in New York saying, you know, Mm. you need to focus on something. It's either climate change or or migration. Going back to your relationship with your parents, Mm. like, you know, I'm first generation migrant parents. So is Julia. I think from your bio that I read, you are too. You know, your your dad grew up in in Malaysia. Yeah. So working in Malaysia. Yeah. Right next to Singapore. Ah, Um, So essentially we're neighbors. Yes. But what I wanted to really dive into Mm. was obviously the career path that you took Mm. was quite different. Mm. And I always like to say that growing up as a Chinese Singaporean child, I had three options to be a a lawyer, a doctor or a failure. (laughs) Um, And those are the only career options that I've got. Were were they the same expectations placed on Mm. you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I was very fortunate because I both my parents are migrants, but they grew they they have very different backgrounds and ways of raising a child. So my parents are incredible. They're my favorite people on earth. They're still together, 40 years married, very happy, amazing humans. So my dad is Malaysian Indian. So um he's from a very small town called Sagama in the south of Malaysia. But before that, we're from India in Kerala. And my mum is British and Persian, but she was born in India in Patna and um, she, so she came to Australia when she was 10 
but my dad migrated to Australia when he was 30 um, because he was migrating to marry my mum and they were decided that they wanted to raise my brother and I here. They're very, very different in the sense like my dad is very focused on education. Education is everything for him. He grew up, I guess, in poverty, essentially. Um, His his dad uh, worked in a rubber plantation, so, you know, just and he lived in a tiny shack, you know, five brothers and sisters and his mum raising him in one bed, you know, like just absolutely nothing. So education is everything and he really felt like that was the only way to succeed in life. Fortunately enough for myself, my mum did not feel the same way. So she is very much understanding that, you know, education is important, but it's not everything. So while they do have very high expectations for myself and also for my brother, we were lucky enough that if we wanted to kind of explore other options, they were always encouraging of us or they could, I could get, you know, at least one of them to see one side of a picture and the other, the other one. So yeah. Play them off against each other. Yeah, yeah. Pit them against each other. That was pretty much <laughs> that was pretty much it. But um, yeah, and I think that 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 pressure, that pressure coming from, you know, as you understand, like an Asian background is very, very intense. And it's a lot. And I think the only way I was able to kind of overcome that and really, you know, find love for things like education or, or things like my career again was literally hitting rock bottom and then just working my way up from there. So I didn't like, I did well in school up until about year 10. I did horribly in VCE. Like my ATAR was 46.1. Like I, it was terrible. Like <laughs> I did not excel at school at all. I went into TAFE. I did a, a cert four in like professional writing before I got into my bachelor's degree. The first years of my bachelor's degree, I barely passed. I think I was just so over the whole thing of like, I have to do education. I have to be good at it to like succeed in life. And then I kind of, you know, came to when I turned 21 in my final year of uni and was like, actually, no, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it properly. And I, I kind of regained that passion and that drive for what I wanted to do again. But yeah, if it wasn't for that period, I don't think I would be where I am now. Did you face any gender expectations? Because you said you've got a brother. Yeah. Yeah. Surprisingly, no. So my dad is the only one to this day out of my entire family who hasn't had an arranged marriage. My entire dad's side, um, we're Hindu and they all still live in Malaysia. So I grew up between, you know, Australia and Malaysia. And yeah, my dad is the only one and he did not get an arranged marriage, but everyone else had. And his reason, I've asked him this before, was that he wanted to be with a strong, independent woman because he could see how other women in my family were kind of at the beck and call of their husbands, and he didn't like that. He thought that that was really unacceptable. So, yeah, I I never faced any expectations, never growing up. Like, my expectations were never around to get engaged and get married and have kids, even to this day. Like, my dad is happy that I am you know, not a thing that I'm interested in, I guess, um, which is a bit sad, but, you know, <laughs> he's always, he's always. That's a different podcast. Yeah, that's a different podcast. He's always like, oh, he's like, how's your life going? How's your love life? I was like, I am very single. He's like, great, stay that way. Don't change. I was like, okay, I'll just never be in love. Cool. <laughs> but yeah, no, he is uh, fiercely passionate on women being incredibly independent, even more so than my mom, like just so, so, so adamant that I need to be financially independent and have this incredible career and go where I want to go and do what I need to do without being held down by anyone else. And I am shocked and amazed that, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a father like that because, you know, my family in Malaysia is wonderful, but they absolutely don't hold the same values as him in terms of that aspect of things. And yeah, I'm very lucky that I was able to have him as my dad. To bring JT into this, again, you guys are so similar. It feels like I'm talking to the same person. But J- JT, yeah, you had a yeah, definitely, with your same mom, thing. Right? So you know, obviously, grew up financially challenged as well, and wanted to do production and events, and really uncommon mm. pathway for a lot of people. Alone, of course, you know, um, Asian yeah. Australians like myself, and my parents were so incredibly supportive. They drove me to my audition interview at my uni BCA. Had no idea what the hell I was auditioning for, but. <laughs> They were like, yeah, you go for it if that's what you're passionate about. And when I got into the course, they still had no idea what I was doing until I completed my course, still no idea. That, but all along the way, they were just like, as long as you're happy, you're passionate about it, you know, you're, you're living a good life, then that, that's all that's, you know, 
that matters. So yeah, mum and dad were really, really great in that way. So in many ways, similar to you, I'm really thankful. That's so beautiful. <laughs> I love that. Oh, you guys get on like a like a house. Yeah, fire. we need uh, we need to have a second podcast where I just talk to you, Julia, about your life, and I get. <laughs> yeah, to I'll you. just I'll just yeah, leave. Michael. Um, I think you're, we're good here if you can head off. <laughs> well, actually, actually, we had we did have a, a series, mm. a mini series on International Women's Day, oh. where I stepped aside and JT took over okay. with the hosting. So you we actually seen could Michael. set that up. He was like easy. dying to get so into. Keep, it. I was I was so many questions I wanted to ask, but you know, March March 2020. Too. Hopefully we can do it in person yeah. as well. Oh my goodness. This is so exciting. <laughs> to time travel back yep. into being in that cafe, being in mm. that bathroom crying, mm. and then you come back to mm-hmm. So you come back home. Yep. Firstly, how was that transition after being away and traveling for so long? <laughs> and then as a follow-up question, how did you apply those experiences or those learnings to your life and work? Coming back was a welcome relief like I was happy to have a break like be able to come back and have a home like I think that's something that have a nice shower or you know once again just like the comfort the comfort that we live in it it blows my mind every day and once again I was in developed countries I was in the global north like I wasn't in places that would you know had no running water or anything but it was just the the comfort level was just blew my mind when coming back also just how much stuff I have when you live out of a suitcase for you know 10 months and then you come back you're like why do I have all these things I don't need any of them that was a really great realization and then sorry what was your second question I forgot the application (laughs) of yeah like applying those learnings so like for instance when, when you start to realize man I've got a lot of I've got a lot of things yeah did it change how you thought about accumulation or consumption? Yeah. Um, did it change how you looked at your work? When I had started on going about this path of, you know, human rights and, you know, looking at ethics and sustainability, I was very much focused on the individual. So I was focused on individual consumption. So if I'm buying or purchasing something, how can I be more ethical? How can I be more sustainable? So that was very much like a lens that I was looking through at the very beginning of this pivot that I was doing in my career. Um, And then coming back, it just, everything just clicked as like the onus should not be on the individual. The onus should be on the corporations and the governments and the systems that are in place um, to kind of really facilitate those changes. And we need to kind of break those down in order for these changes to happen. So um, that was a huge kind of learning point for me. And and I did a lot of research in my master's into neoliberalism, which is kind of the study around, you know, why, we always put the onus onto the individual and kind of distract from the realities that are happening with these big businesses and corporations and stuff like that. So that was a really great learning I took out of everything. And yeah, kind of coming out the other side, you know, coming back into Melbourne, I was still a bit lost. I I won't lie and say that I knew exactly what I wanted to be doing. I just knew that I had to, once again, the path that I I still hadn't finished my master's because I did it part-time. So it took me four years, but I did want to work full-time. I knew that that was something I wanted to work full-time and study part-time. Coming back, I kind of just looked for an interim job and I was fortunate enough to become a librarian (laughs) for Wyndham City Council. So I got to be like, which is just the best job in the world, may I add. I loved it. Which which library? Um, I worked across all of Wyndham's libraries. So, yeah, it was very exciting. Also, very humbling experience. When you go overseas and you do a ton of really cool shit. Sorry, swear for time. When you go and do a lot of cool stuff, like I had spoken at the UN, like I'd done that twice. And then to come back and it's like, cool, I'm just stacking books at my local library in Werribee. Like that's, no one cares. (laughs) No one cares what you've done. Like they just want good customer service and they want a good book recommendation. And that's, you know, what they want. So it was kind of a really great experience to come back and just have that realisation that, you know, you can do all these amazing things and your family and your friends back home are still going to see you for you and your community is still going to see you for you. So when I first met you, I always wondered how you were able to balance seemingly being a global citizen and having these worldly experiences, but also you're fiercely passionate about the West Mm. and Mm. your local community. Mm. And I, I guess the question is like, how do you balance these seemingly contrasting values? Yeah, I think that it's just learning and understanding. I'm very focused on what is 
the best way to create positive change? Like what is is the best way? Like I just, I'm so, I'm always trying to figure that out. So for me, while it is all well and good to be really interested in what's happening overseas and, you know, contribute towards hopefully positive change over there, I really did sit down and kind of break down the different elements of who I am as a person and the different things I'm passionate about and kind of really understanding from that perspective, you know, okay, so if I um, you know, someone who is from a Malaysian or an Indian background, I could potentially go over there and do work over there. But I just felt it was so, I was seeing so many disadvantaged people where I grew up. I've experienced a lot of really horrible things, for lack of a better word, growing up in the West. And I've experienced really a lot of beautiful things growing up in the West. And I would hope that change should start locally. I'm obviously not a Indigenous person. I'm, you know, it's not my land that we're currently sitting on, but I was raised here and I really feel like I should at least try to understand and contribute to positive local change before I can say, okay, I'm going to go internationally and attempt the same things. And it also just understanding that, you know, you have such a unique perspective living in a particular place. There are so many different ways that you can help within that, that things that you can't even see, you know, that you can, you can do to help your community. So, yeah, I think that's where I'm, why I'm so passionate about creating local change and then also, you know, looking outward as well and really thinking about, okay, why am I going to this place overseas if I am going to go and do these things? Yeah, I actually tried to stump you with that question <laughs> and you did very you did very well to navigate. <laughs> I set up a false, a false dichotomy, as they call it, to make you choose between one or the other, but you navigated it really well. And what you said is mm. to have global change, you've got to start local, yeah. is really beautiful. And I obviously, you know me, I love the West, Julia, I know her, you know her as well. She also loves mm. the West. So we all, we all love the yeah. West in, in this room, in this virtual room. One of the th- challenges with working in your community and being so passionate mm. and community orientated is the issue of burnout. Mm. And I work so closely with the communities in the West mm. and even with my local government of Brimbank previously and now Melton. Mm. When it comes to five o'clock, a lot of my other colleagues can switch off, turn off their laptops mm. and, you know, they've shut off from work. When I do that, I'm still in my job yep. and in the mm. place of work, mm. if that makes sense. Malta City Council is a client, but they're also Your my home. local government. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I was wondering whether you face those challenges of burning out and how do you manage that burnout mm. and exercise self-care? Yeah, yeah. I think that, like, managing burnout is so particular to the individual and so is self-care so I am fortunate and you know enough I guess to have access to incredible medical care but also fortunate and unfortunate in some ways I've dealt with health issues from a really young age for me it was something where self-care and and managing burnout and managing anxiety has been always something that's been very intrinsic into my life from a very 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 young age I burn out all the time that's not to say I don't burn out I do too much stuff like I know I do too much stuff and you put it really beautifully when you said that you know you when you leave your job you're still in your job because you're still helping local people and that never stops. Like if, if someone was to come up to me or a young person wanted to, from a migrant or refugee background, wanted to engage with me outside of working hours because that's the only time they were available for me to help them, then I'm going to do it. Like I always say yes. But I think that I have had to learn how to draw the line at those sorts of things. I'm also a big believer in being honest with yourself about how much you can achieve within the set period of time. If I'm entering a job and a full-time job where I'm working 40 hours a week, and I can't, for whatever reason, achieve the workload within the 40 hours, there's nothing wrong with me. There's something wrong with the way that that job is set up. So the first thing I'll be doing is going and speaking to someone higher up and saying, hey, look, this is amazing work we're doing and I love the work we're doing, but I can't realistically achieve this day in, day out without working overtime, so we need to figure something out. Uh, and I have no problem saying that because I'm not going to put an organisation before my own health. So, yeah, that that's kind of one aspect. In terms of self-care, that's it's so important and something I've really learned throughout traveling from the three months old until, you know, now. And I have a very strict routine in place. Once again, I, I'm a planner. I love routine. I love routine. I love routine. Set the scene from the morning all the way till the evening. You want, you want my routine? <laughs> I, I will happily give it to you. <laughs> yes. Give me, give me the headlines. Um, so uh, I try to wake up at the same time every day. That's one big thing. So I usually get up between 6.37 Um, I exercise every morning, but I also 
in lockdown, I exercise twice a day. I usually go for a lot of runs. Before I did running, I was doing a lot of boxing. So I used to be an amateur fighter a few years ago. So I really learned kind of that consistency is key. Even if you don't feel like exercising, you can always do something to move your body just to kind of feel like you've done something. It can be a 10 minute walk around the block and come back and it's like, you've still done something, you know? So yeah, exercise is super, super important to me. And it's just about being super healthy and really strong and really fit because I want to feel like I can run at any point or, you know, (laughs) things like that. And also eating, like I've had to really learn to eat for my body and eat for what works for me as well. So trying to eat clean as much as possible. And I've been pescatarian for six years now so I haven't had any red meat any chicken nothing like that and I'm practically vegan as well I don't really have any like milk or cheese products um, you know unless I'm going out with friends kind of thing so I try to avoid those as well so that's something that works for me and also helps the environmental impact at the end of the day I kind of have the same routine at the end of the day that I do at the start of the day so I make sure I tidy up the house I make sure I do some exercise I make sure I have a shower I make sure I eat something really healthy. Both ends of the day, I'm setting myself up for a really good middle of the day where I have to really focus and do a lot of work. And on weekends, I've done this for years and years and years and years and years, but everybody knows me, knows that Sundays is like off limits, off limits. So on Sunday, I do whatever I want for myself. I say that like it's such a fun thing, but I actually have a to-do list I get through. I do all my cleaning, cooking, laundry, life admin, errands. I do all of that on a Sunday. I will not pick up my phone unless it's an emergency. I will not schedule anything with anyone unless it's absolutely imperative, like it's someone's birthday or something. And that is so that the week is set ahead for me. So I'm ready for the whole week. So you can throw anything at me during the week. I might have to work overtime. I have to wake up early. I might have an emergency that happens. And it doesn't matter because my meals have been set up. My laundry has been done. My house is clean. I feel great about myself. And I know that, you know, I've got that. And all those things are free. That's the first thing. And the second thing is they're all dependent on myself, which means no matter where I am in the world or what resources I have, I can still have that in place. And it's just going to ground me and and make me feel, you know, like I'm being the best version of myself each day. Even in lockdown. Even in lockdown, yeah. I made the observation that you and Julia are very- I was just going to say that. I think me and you, when it comes to exercise and habits and routines, me and you- Very, very similar. <laughs> I've actually been... Maybe I'm just half-half. Half. Maybe Julia. I'm half-Michael, half-Julia. I, I think so. I think so. I mean, your name does start with an M. <laughs> yeah. So we're kind of there. Yep. You got you got an I and a H and an A. Oh, my God. Just mix it around and we've got it. <laughs> you said you got Michael. But no, I, I've been telling Julia and also colleagues that in this lockdown, I've been being really strict yep. on sleeping at the same time mm-hmm. and waking up at the same time every day. Yeah. And mm. beginning my morning with exercise, mm. with a run actually, yep. the same as you. And and if I can fit it in, I'll do like light body weight workout yep. in the evening mm-hmm. to like decompress. Yeah, my God, I'm so similar. we are the same. But the only other the the way the, I think the where we diverge is, I'm a notorious overworker. So I'll like sometimes I'll I'll work on not not wild lab stuff like particularly, <laughs> but just other stuff on a Sunday. Yeah, like this podcast oh, and other stuff on a Sunday. I, I, on a Sunday, if no, once I get all my tasks done, I am notorious for not being able to relax. Like I am work, that is my goal for this year is to learn how to relax. So I will work on a Sunday, but it will only be once I get everything else ready for the week. Yeah. Gotcha. yeah. So, I, so like you got your non-negotiable yeah, list. Yeah, that's, that's kind of it. Yeah. And then with the spare few hours I have, I'm willing to hang out with a friend. Obviously can't do that in lockdown. So I'm working as my second job. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Right, okay. So we are the same, Michael. Your friend is like we slightly lower on your non-negotiable list on that Sunday. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an option. It, it, it's an no, option. But it is. It is. It sounds so silly. And like my family, my friends are everything to me. And they are like, I will give. As you might have noticed, I'm very much all or nothing. Like I'm a hundred percent, or I'm absolutely nothing. I don't half-ass anything I do. So they are everything to me. But at the same time, like I know for myself, these are the non-negotiables I need to get through a week, and I have to do them. And if I don't make time for myself, no one else is going to make time for me. So. Good. I've got to do it. Would you say you're more introverted? Or <laughs> oh, extroverted. That's not even a question. <laughs> I thought I'd ask. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, because you know you can you can get some people like I've become more introverted as lockdown has gone. Oh like, yeah, yeah. Lockdown has gone on. I've become more comfortable just being by myself. Yes, yes. And getting more energy by myself. Yes, I think I I have as well throughout lockdown, but I'm still like an extrovert at heart. You know, like you can't can't take it out of me. <laughs> 
sorry, JT, I will throw over to you at one one point, but you, you mentioned something so casually that I almost missed it. Mm. <laughs> you said you were an amateur fighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need more detail. So I like to do, so just to lay, like, lay some context down, I am not a sports person. <laughs> I am never, so I literally, with the exception of walking, I did not exercise till I was 21. Like I never played a sport ever I never did any exercise ever I just took like my mum kind of is a bit like that my brother mind you is a marathon runner my dad was the number two squash player in Malaysia in his 20s so he was a pro athlete so just like they really got the genes to just go the distance I did not the only way I can feasibly exercise is to do something very extreme so boxing skateboarding running ocean swimming, give me something that is going to push me to my absolute limit where I feel like it's life or death and then I will exercise. <laughs> but I'll do it every day. That sounds healthy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so healthy. But the thing is, I think because I don't know if you guys are like this, but I'm an overthinker. So the only way that I'm able to kind of get out of my head and have a brief like reprieve from my brain is to do something that requires total physical dedication without that I'm just not going to be able to get out of my own head and yeah boxing came into my life so um, I did it for nine months as like kind of in a shed in Werribee that was holding like kind of boxing classes boxing fit I don't know if it still exists this was a few years ago and then after about nine months there were all guys one girl and they were amateur fighters some of them pro fighters some of them now pro MMA fighters in the US so yeah I ended up exercising out of out of this shed for about nine months doing boxing and then I would just stay later than everyone else because I just loved it I was obsessed with it so I would go and do two hours in the morning and two hours at night so four hours a day six days a week and then I was training so I was training with these amateur fighters and before I was able to have my first fight literally like three weeks before I was really badly injured and I had to stop boxing altogether um, and then find new ways to physically push myself. So, yeah, now I do a lot of running. Occasionally I'll do bouldering. And then, you know, when it's summer, I'll do ocean swimming. I love that. Yeah. I think it's time for a drink. Yes. <laughs> Cheers, by oh, the way. I'm missing out. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah, oh, I forgot to say, Julia, we the bottle. Oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mug. I, I, I told you to. Girl. Yeah. She hates it. Um, I have to say, on the Frank Green front, I have sold this water bottle, I kid you not, like sold as in convinced people to buy it. To buy I it. kid you not, over 10 people. They need it. I think I've done the same. My dad, my brother, my sister-in-law all have one. Three people I work with at YGAP now have one. I give them out as presents. I sent one to Is the Frank Pardon? Green brand, they make coffee cups too, right? Or coffee. But they're the ones with yeah. the annoying yeah. you push down yeah. with the hole. Push. I think that because I yeah, it's not so good. It's, I bought into it, and I think that's a stupid design. And I've really <laughs> not a fan of Frank Green. Frank Green. This one's yeah. better. Can't do coffee cups. Yeah. Can do. Does can it have do drink ten billion compartments? Your water bottle? No, it's really easy to clean. It's a lid, straw, lid, metal straw, metal drink bottle. Done. I'm like, don't overcomplicate something that I enjoy, such as drinking my coffee with ten bits that I need to wash afterwards. You know, it's too stressful. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't like. I'm not a fan of their coffee cups. But cut that out in case we get a sponsorship from Frank Green. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could see the digital marketing <laughs> skills coming yes. in. So it was fascinating yes. to learn about your background and your journey, especially yep. your internships as well, and that pivot that you had between, you know, your mm. earlier marketing career to what you do now. So what do you do now? So let's start with YGAP. Can you give us a quick explanation of your role and what the organisation is about? Yes. What do I do now? I do a few things. So my full-time job is with YGAP. I am smiling a huge smile because I just love them so much. <laughs> so I've been in that role for about four months now. I am a program manager, the Australian program manager for YGAP. And yeah, so what I primarily do is I run programs for migrant and refugee entrepreneurs who run ventures primarily in the social impact space, but not always. Sometimes we have ventures that, you know, are for profit or, you know, different types of organizations. And then on top of that, we do a lot of research as well with YGAP and also with our international teams. So YGAP runs across a few different places in, in the world, in Kenya and South Africa and um, Fiji as well. 
Uh, and then I also do a lot of ecosystem work where I'll go and speak at events or panels, workshops, those sorts of things. And yeah, just focus on building kind of partnerships where we're able to run hopefully more programs and reach more migrants and refugees who um, have their own business but need the help and support of an accelerator program. Yeah, that's amazing. Why do you love it so much? Well, a few reasons. The organisation is very open to discussion around how they can do things better. And for me, that is very rare, like incredibly rare. I am still quite young, but I have worked for a lot of organizations, you know, from corporate all the way into, you know, the UN and, you know, nonprofits, NGOs, local government. And they are probably the first organization I've ever worked for that has actively said, you know, we day in, day out want to figure out how to be better and how to do better and how to hear marginalized voices and, you know, really learn from what they're saying rather than just saying we've ticked a box and moving on. So, yeah, that's why I really love working there and and I feel so incredibly privileged to be able to be in the role I'm in and do the work that I do. I've worked really hard to get here, but I also feel really lucky to have the role as well. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like a really yeah. progressive organisation that you've become a part of. Yes. Really nice because I think you yes. said, so the role is programs manager, is that correct? Yeah, so, program yeah, manager. Fantastic. And that yep. was clearly something that you yeah. wanted to do back when you were in your internship, as you mentioned before, you know, that what I want to do. Yeah. It's so great to see that you're def- definitely there now. We also know that you're mm. involved in another organization called Sari Collective, sounding very familiar like, Collect- yep. you know, Collective West. Yeah, yeah but um, yeah. Talk a little bit more about that. <laughs> Sari Co or Sari Collective, but we call it Sari Co, is a startup media organization and we primarily focus on kind of the issues of South Asian Australians and their lived experience. So We do that in a few ways. Um, We have a website where we post editorial content around kind of any sort of issue that affects South Asian Australian people. We also have a interactive map which can send you to different places that are run by and for South Asian um, entrepreneurs. And then we also partner with different organisations who are kind of looking to get a South Asian lens on something or you know want to have an event with us or a forum or a panel so yeah we do quite a variety of things but it's just really about community and bringing it together I think when you are born and raised in Australia as a first generation Australian but you are from a migrant background it's really hard to figure out you know you don't seem to belong in Australia but you also don't belong where you're from so that's why I love the organization and yeah I'm head of community there so I kind of get to work across an operations perspective but also how to build that community that I'm really excited that I got to find you know even though it's so late in my life I still got to find them and I wish I had found them earlier that's amazing and I just feel like how do you Mm. have all the energy (laughs) to work across two you know obviously very passionate um organization yeah how how are you balancing everything Mm. honestly on your plate so I do I do I do have an extra oh my gosh but I do (laughs) yeah I, I am also a peer assessor on the culture and diversity panel for the Australian oh. Council of the Arts. So I do that as well. So I'm lucky in that sense that's only once every few months that I have to do that and that's only a few a couple of days of work. So but yeah, I guess I just I'm really good at, once again it just comes back to planning and, and organization and time management. It sounds really boring, but it's honestly just how you get stuff done. I'm obviously very lucky. I don't have any, you know, I don't have a, I'm very lucky. I don't have a partner. <laughs> I don't have a partner. Um, you know, I don't have pets. I don't have kids. I don't have any dependents. So I really just get to use my time for me. And all I want to do with my time is help others. That's, that's all I really want to do. So the 40 hours a week, and that's why I guess before when I was saying I'm really particular about finishing the work within the 40 hours that I have, it's because I would like to use the time outside of that to do other things. So I really focus on using that time wisely. And then outside of that, I spend about four to eight hours a week on Sarico. The peer council is just kind of dependent on like a month to month basis, whether you get called upon to be a part of that. And then outside of that, just volunteering. So a lot of donating, a lot of petitioning, rallies, protests. And then when I'm not doing that, looking into kind of volunteering with local organisations who focusing on things like human rights, abuses, um, refugee issues, climate change issues, as much as I possibly can as well. Just, yeah, every facet of my life and every time frame that I have in a day, I, I kind of want to use it wisely and, and do things with purpose. So, yeah, just planning ahead, planning out. Knowing you have three jobs Mm -hmm. and still keep that routine makes it even more And be so passionate and bubbly. I just love it. I'm feeling, I'm vibing all of this through. 
(laughs) (laughs) The routine is really important. My parents were both in the Air Force for a very long time. So I grew up, I'm going to a military base a lot. And yeah, I learned a lot from them in terms of routine and consistency. So yeah, that's probably where it comes from. Because you said you also consulted and and essentially ran your own for a period of time. Do you think that also contributed to your ability to switch from job to job now like being able to manage your time so well because I feel like you know running a business being able to consult for a range of clients and all that kind of builds your routine as well yeah absolutely I I think to be honest with you not to like backtrack too much but it really began when I was 21 so I was working I worked two jobs I did a double internship and I was studying full-time my bachelor's degree in my final year of uni that was where I had to establish a routine like that for me was like the establishing point I have never not worked two jobs since I was 17 I've always worked two jobs when you are working so much and you don't want to you know half-ass it you want to do a good job the only way to do that is to find what works for you and constantly revisit those things, constantly reflect upon those things. You can't just blindly go into all these different things and then expect to not burn out or expect to do all of these things great or expect to get to where you're going unless you really reflect upon how you're going. And and sometimes you need to make changes. You know, I knew sometimes there were clients that I had to say no to. I knew sometimes there were jobs that I had to turn down because they weren't right for me. But yeah, just really sticking, like being true to who you are and and making sure that you trust your instincts as well is important. I feel like you're going to run the world one day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I feel too tired to run the world. (laughs) No, with all the routine and list of things, I totally can. I have faith in you. Maybe I can organise for someone else to do it. I'll just be in the background just planning Um, for them. (laughs) Honestly, I feel like we can talk until tomorrow morning. Uh, I appreciate it is almost 7.30, so I'll hand back to Michael now for the closing Thank you, JT. Look, this is a standard question that we ask yeah. all of our guests. So you, you may or may not have heard it before, but if you could put one piece of advice for young people across Melbourne's mm. West on a billboard, and this billboard overlooks the Westgate Bridge, so as you're coming from the east or from the city into the west, you're going to see it, what would it be and why? Oh, can I can I do a saying that I made up and I've been saying to people like I'm some famous Please. person? <laughs> Please quote yourself. <laughs> um, okay. The saying is curiosity didn't kill the cat, complacency did. And that's I made that up. Yes, thank you. You're welcome to dab. <laughs> and that's kind of just how I, I, I live life. And and I think that once again, success is different for everybody. Everyone is different. Everyone is so incredibly different. For some people that might be academic, for some people that might, you know, not include anything to do with uni or, or with schooling. It might be getting out there in your local community. Every single person has value and every single person is able to do what they can with what they have to create positive change in their community. So I think for me, it's about being realistic in terms of what you do have and what you don't have and the barriers you face, but also not using those as excuses to not get up every day and help other people. And that's why I always say like curiosity, (laughs) you know, it's not killing any cats. Like, you know, complacency will though, you know, if you're just sitting there being complacent in your daily life, that is absolutely going to, you know, kill your your passion and your drive and your excitement for the world. Curiosity won't. Learning about people, no matter who they are or what walks of life they come from, won't. And learning about things that, you know, you don't know and acknowledging that when you don't know something, that's that's always a positive. That's always a learning curve and that's always something to strive towards. So that is what I would put on a billboard. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> And where can people find out about you and the work that you do with YGAP and Sarika? Yes, they can find me on LinkedIn. It's just my name, Marishana. Um, I also have a website with all of my work. I don't think it's updated with the work from YGAP and Sarico. The link is also on my LinkedIn bio, but that's also just my name, www.marishana.com dot au i believe and yeah you can see all the work that i've done there you can see my speeches you can see all that jazz and yeah you will be able to have links as well to ygap and to sariko so you can view all the incredible work that i get to do with these incredible organizations 
to wrap up, I'm so glad that Collective West was the first podcast that you've ever yes. done. Uh, you're never for- going to forget. You never forget your, your first. first. Podcast appearance. <laughs> yes, exactly. You'll never forget your first podcast appearance. Yep. But Marisha, thank you on behalf of Julie and I and Collective West for coming onto the podcast. We really appreciate your time and just being so honest and sharing your story. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it was so nice to get to know both of you. This podcast is proudly sponsored by the Victorian government. The Collective West podcast is a proud recipient of the Department of Fairness, Family and Housing Cold Youth Content Campaign. As part of this series, we'll be interviewing 10 thought leaders from across Melbourne's West, ranging from education, employment and government. Stay tuned for future episodes. Julia and I are really excited about the range of interviewees that we've got coming up over the next 10 weeks. So stay tuned and stay safe.